0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by AlephBeta.org. How can we make Tisha B'av feel relevant and meaningful for us today when the destruction of the Beis Emekdash was so long ago? These questions may be impossible to answer, but on Tisha B'av, they are just, impos- just as impossible to ignore. With Tisha B'av approaching, I want to encourage you to check out Aleph Beta's collection of Tisha B'av videos. Rabbi David Foreman, founder of Aleph Beta, who was a guest on this Farm Chatter podcast, um, has many... Uh, videos which explore some of the most beloved of texts to discover the deeper meaning and relevance of the day. And for a limited time, for the listeners of Sfarm Chatter, uh, listeners get eighteen dollars off an annual Aleph Beta membership, which gives you access to all the Tishuba videos plus hundreds more on Parsha and other uh, Yom Taivim And discussed this in the past. Aleph Beta sponsored episodes in the past, and Rabbi Foreman was on the uh, show. They have uh, cartoon-like videos where he explains novel of, uh, ideas and. The Parsha and I'm telling you, and even other things, so it's very interesting. Check it out, the link in, in the show's notes below. So, you need, all you need to do is go to alephbeta.org that's a l e p h b e t a.org and enter coupon code Sfarim23 S E F O R I M 23. When you check out for $18 off an annual premium subscription, and that information will be in the show's notes. Just a note about the episode here. Uh, this episode is about Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, from the 7th to the 13th century. So not an inherently Jewish time in Yerushalayim, a very you know, sad, unfortunate time as we're now in the three weeks. I figure this episode is appropriate to post now. Uh, it's it, it, you know, I, I think I read this book. I found it very interesting and enlightening. And, and hopefully you will find this episode as well because it's not always a time period of Yerushalayim and the uh, Eretz Yisrael that's very well known. Um, there are Jews and there's a Jewish aspect to this, but it's not inherently that. It's not only that. It's a tumultuous period uh, in, in Eretz Israel and in Yerushalayim. And so different Muslim kings, there's crusades. There's, there's a lot of different things going on. The Byzantines, I again. Mean, there's a lot of different things going on. So, um, you know, if you're not familiar with this time period, you know, find it in And again, it's just, uh, you know, story of the uh, post-Khorban of the Galus and uh, of what, what happened, uh, you know, in Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim. Um, with that, a couple other uh, notes. First of all, just a programming note. I want to mention that Farm Chatter uh, started off on, on Twitter posting new farm and things, but uh, for a variety of reasons, um, decided that the time is uh, right, I think. Well, we'll see. I started a forum. So there's a, now a farmchatter.com website where you can check out some blog. We post once in a while. By the way, if anyone's interested in... in can Email me things about to post on the blog, but there's uh the, the, the podcasts are there. They can check the series, the Spanish series, and the Shabtai series on the series. I hope to index other episodes later, but there's also now a forum there, so you can check out the forum. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with the Aitzra forum, which is in Hebrew, hope to be a similar thing. So there's different threads, there's new Sfaram thread, new books, which are admin only, and I'll post things there and you can respond. And then there's also, um there's a new English forum on there. There's a, a thread about the podcast. You can make your own talk about whatever, and you can just look at it. Uh, and if you want to comment, please do please, uh, you know, sign up as, uh, as a user and to talk there. Hopefully it's a place where we can talk Jewish history and, uh, Svarim books and, um, hopefully. So check it out. I'll put the link in the show's notes, but if you go on Svarimchatter.com, it says forum right there. It's right there. You can go, I think it's forum.svarimchatter. But if you, again, if you go on the website, regular it comes up. Um, also, uh, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode, I've had a number of sponsors uh, recently, so I very much appreciate that and thank all the sponsors and advertisers. But if you want to, um, you could $360 an episode, you can email me, sparmchatter at gmail.com. Also, you can send any amount of money, even less, any amount is appreciated. Uh, that's, there's Zelle QuickPay, farmchatter at gmail.com. And for all of you that have subscribed, and uh, rate and review the show. Very much appreciated on Apple and Spotify. Twenty four six yet twenty four six doesn't let you rate, but you can subscribe there and listen there. Uh, and in you know again wherever, and however you listen. And uh, as always, I appreci- appreciate the feedback, the comments, the suggestions. So you can always email me those as well. And uh, enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Sparm Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor John Hassler, who is Professor of Military History at the Command and General Staff College. And we'll be discussing uh, his new book, which is titled Jerusalem Falls: Seven Centuries of War and Peace from Yale University Press, which is about Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, uh, especially in the from seventh seventh to the thirteenth century, I believe, if, if that's correct. And Professor you will correct me if that's wrong. And uh, we'll be discussing that, you know, the book, but really the history, a very interesting history that the book, you know, uh, discusses and recounts. So thank you, Professor Hauser,
1: for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here.
0: Okay. Uh, why don't you start off with all the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? And I will also ask you to uh, explain where you work, because I, I read it there in the introduction. Of, you know, I read it. I said it there, but I don't know. You know, I asked you this before we started recording. I'm sure the listeners would also uh, probably have a question about what that is and would appreciate hearing about what it is.
1: <laughs> sure. So I have I have a background in medieval history. Um, and I, I studied for my PhD at the University of Delaware, where I worked with a, actually a specialist in the history of Jerusalem. Um, but I didn't want to study Jerusalem while I was there. So I listened to him and I, I read his books. And I, I said, that's fine, but I really want to do English history. And so I started off writing books and articles about English history. And I spent about half my career doing that. Um, and then decided after a while, I'm like, you know what? I actually am interested in the Middle East. I am interested in Jerusalem. I wish I had, you know, known this when I was when I was with him, you know, in seminar. Uh, and then I sort of pivoted, and I just kind of what I did is I followed the the English leaders I was studying anyway. I followed them on when they went on crusade to the Middle East. And that was kind of the touchstone for it. And um, and so I ended up, I've, I've kind of had two halves of my career, one studying Northwest Europe, the other now studying the Near East um, and future projects. I think I'm going to try to find ways to sort of bring those together. Um, but that's that's what I've been doing. And I, I, let's see, I, I finished my PhD in 2005. So uh, I've been teaching ever since that. I used to teach in Baltimore, Maryland at a um, school called Morgan State University in uh, the city of Baltimore. For about twelve years, and then I gave that up to go work for the U.S. Army out at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is um, quite the change from the uh, the mid-Atlantic uh, urban landscape. To uh, well, I mean, I pass cows every every day on my drive to work, so uh, very different out here. Uh, at the and you asked me about the college, the uh, Command and General Staff College. We have roughly twelve hundred military officers who come from. The Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, as well as over 100 uh, foreign um, armies from around the world, from allies and, and interests of the United States. And all those mid-career officers come and they do a year of professional military education, um, and after which they, they get qualified in a number of ways to take on greater responsibilities and, and promotions if, that, if those lay down the road for them. Um, and we teach them military history while they're here and they get a year's worth of uh, military history. And it's, it's more modern than what I research. We start in the 17th century and then we take it up to the present day. Um, And so they, they get that all the way through about March. And then after I get to teach electives in medieval history, my stuff, and then I'll have some of those officers come over and we'll talk the crusades. And I have a course on Jerusalem and that sort of stuff. And um, so it allows me to, to mix up uh, the, the ancient medieval and modern in kind of a nice way.
0: Right, you're not really teaching siege tactics of Jerusalem uh, to Um, current officers.
1: No, not not unless they take my elective. Now, if they do, then they have to learn that stuff. So they get to learn about, uh, you know, about um, digging tunnels and uh, battering rams and that sort of fun thing.
0: So that's I'm saying, but you do teach that. Then you do go into that. It's not just like broad history. You do actually go into the tactics.
1: Absolutely, every class we teach has to have some kind of bearing on military profession. So, um, so I get into it, and you know, we talk for example logistics, and I say, well, you know, you have trucks and trains, and you know, airplanes and boats, and these things now. Well, this is what they had during the Crusades. They had mules and oxen, and they also had ships, and and the you know the thing, the problems they ran into were the same problems that we run into today. It's just you know instead of uh, horsepower, even you know mechanical horsepower, you have actual horsepower.
0: Okay, so let's get into this topic. So, as you mentioned there before, that when you started out, your your teacher it was you said I don't think you mentioned who he was, but you said uh, it was an expert in Jerusalem. But you didn't, you, you know, you pivoted away from that. So, how did you come back and decide you're going to write this book now?
1: Yeah, I think uh you know, I think it's just some of it was serendipity, and uh, I think I finally, but I think I started reading some of the sources that he had been reading. And his name, by the way, was was Daniel Callahan. He um kind of a specialist on 10th and 11th century apocalypticism. Um. And, you know, I started looking at these sources he had talked about and he had looked at and started reading some of these texts and remembering some things from his classes and just found it extraordinarily interesting and really got into the notion of comparative cultural perceptions of warfare. And what I mean by that is um, one of my earlier books was on the Siege of Acre. And I found that, you know, for that siege, every step of the way, I could read a Christian source for the siege and then I could read a um, a Muslim source written in Arabic of the same thing. And so you get this kind of point counterpoint and they would give details and iron out each other's details and you could discern a certain truth from it. And I just found that really, really cool that you've got these two diametrically opposed um, perspectives and that you could start to untangle it. I love the mystery work to it. And I, I just got sucked in and now I'm now I'm neck deep in it.
0: So, by the way, just to clarify, the siege of Acre or Akko is part of the Third Crusade, right? You want to explain yes. what that is, just briefly, even though what we're talking about now.
1: Yeah, the Third Crusade. The um, this is the great um, expedition um, in in the re- response to Saladin's um, recapturing of Jerusalem in 1187, and and the the disaster at the Battle of Hattin, which preceded it. So the the uh, Western states they rise up and they send this massive multi part expeditionary army uh, to yeah to modern day Akko um too and that's where it begins that's where they the crusade begins and that's where they first meet saladin and and fight him again And they try to get to jerusalem they just never do they can see it they get at one point where they can actually see the city but richard the lionheart never actually goes there
0: okay we'll discuss him and then the crusades later on in the episode so the book as i mentioned originally discussed the 7th to the 13th centuries why did you start in the 7th to the 13th what's why did you pick these time periods
1: So I'm really interested in when the city switched hands. And so you have the first... Major in the medieval period, anyway. If you, know, if, you, if you want to do the ancient period, then you're, you're going to be talking Constantine and you know, and these um, you know go all the way back to um, to the Romans and the year seventy and that sort of thing. But in the medieval period, the first switching of possession of the city was in the early seventh century uh, when the Persians took it from the Byzantines, and the last switching of possession was uh, the passing off of it was in the thirteenth century, where the Christians relinquished their final control back to Muslims, and then after. that it's straight muslim control all the way until the 20th century um and so for the middle ages i said well those seem like good right and left limits um because i'm being mostly interested in the sieges and then the military parts of it that's when the action was going on and it was switching hands and so those those became my um my measurements i could have gone a little further forward i suppose towards the ottomans um but it's that's, that's, you know, almost opening up a whole other can of worms when you start getting into the details of, of their rules. So I thought that seemed like a good breaking point.
0: Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Um, yeah. Well, as for listeners interested in more, obviously I had obviously listeners may be familiar. I had a three part series uh, over the, the summer. Yeah. It took discussing with professor Guy Rogers and his book, recent book with also Yale university press about the Horbin and about the destruction and the Romans coming in. So you know, leaving that. Let me jump. So, just kind of briefly, from there, how do we get to the Byzantines being in charge of Jerusalem? And also, maybe just a quick overview or a refresher for those that have no idea what Byzantine, what the Byzantine Byzantium is. If you could explain for the listeners.
1: Sure, sure. So the before, okay. So in the third century, um, one of the Roman emperors by the name of Diocletian decided to split the Roman emperor empire in two. The Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, as we just use them in textbooks, um, with the idea that it was it was so big, so complex, no one person could really handle it all on themselves, and so that sets the beginning of the precedent for this this Eastern Empire, centered on this city, um, this um this area that where modern where Constantinople would be built by Constantine, and um and where Istanbul lies today. Over the course of the the fourth century. Um, so Diocletian, he dies in, oh, what, 305, I want to say. Um. Over the course of the 4th century, it, you know, the, the empire comes back together for a while, and then it splits apart again. And it it kind of does this dance. But by the time you get to the 5th century, the Western Roman Empire falls, and the only part that remains of it of is the east. Um. It's referred to it, traditionally as Byzantium because the city of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, is built on the foundations of a town called Byzantium right and that that's that's why it has that name today greek historians kind of rail against that um because when you read byzantine sources they never refer to themselves as byzantines they call themselves romans because in their minds they're they're romans right and so there's a real there's a huge argument in the field right now about whether we should use that word anymore or whether we should call it but but nobody has a good replacement for it so you have this byzantine or if you want to call it the eastern roman empire right that survives now it's in In the midst of all of that, you have the Emperor Constantine, uh, the the the, uh, Emperor who legalizes the Christian faith. His mother makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which lies in that Eastern Roman, you know, that the future Byzantine domain, uh, where she purportedly digs up the tomb of Christ, uh, finds the tomb, finds the crosses, and um, and instantly becomes this this sort of um, magnet. For christian pilgrims they're going to start coming there and they're going to start building there so really it's that fourth century that becomes decisive that's when christians kind of rekindle their interest in the holy city not that they didn't know about it before Uh, they did but but now that rome is a christian empire they can come out and worship in public now you can go and restore these sites all of a sudden now okay people are going to visit there and when the emperor's mother is there that's the imprimatur, right it's you know if she's saying it's an important place then we can all agree it's an important place and so this um now you have the um the christian and then when the empire in the west falls the byzantine control of that city all the way up until the 7th century
0: okay so until the 7th century where we're going to start about 614 as you're saying it was under christian control under the roman byzantine control um, right. How about at uh, but until that point? Just interesting. You know who else was in the city? So obviously we're Christians. Are, there are Jews in the city. I mean, what else is going on in the city at this time?
1: Yeah, you have Christians. You have Jews. You have. It's it's hard to know because the, you know the, the shtick of the Romans is as they you know they legalize the faith and then there's this demand. It kind of becomes the you know official faith. You know Emperor Theodosius declares paganism illegal. So the theory is is well if that's true then pagans. are are theoretically disappearing, right? They're either hiding, they're not talking about it, or they're converting, whether they believe or not is an open question. Um, So you have Christians, you have Jews in the city. um, You probably also have latent paganism there. It's hard to know exactly how much. And then not too far away, you have these other sort of more minor faiths in terms of population, like the Zoroastrians in Persia. Which which are which are there because they're they're moving in and out on trade routes, they're visiting and whatnot. Are they resident in the city? Difficult to know who's actually living there. But it seems that even in those late periods, you have a fairly diverse population. It's dominated by Christianity for sure. And then Emperor Heraclius is going to really put the screws down on the Jewish population um, and, and start to repress them, not only in Jerusalem, but, but kind of throughout his domains. So life is definitely difficult, but there, but there are Jews there and there are Christians and they are living side by side. It's probably not entirely comfortable most of the time. That would be my, my, my guess. But it's, it's hard to know because barring any kind of really good description of, you know, I was in the city today and here's what I saw. And those things are great. They're worth their weight in gold, but we just don't have that many of them.
0: Right. One other thing I should go back for a second. Constantine's mother, Helena, I think she, she found, she founds a church then. It's her.
1: Yes. Yeah. So the, the, there's a, there's a temple, um, I believe to Venus on the spot. Um, and then supposedly you know, a local says, oh, well, this is where the tomb is. Right. And so they they rip up the old foundations of the temple and then they dig and then a church is established there. And that's the beginning of this, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, um, which goes through all of these different transformations and foundations. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of it. So um, early fourth century.
0: OK, now we'll, we'll jump forward to when the book uh, begins. Uh, it's 614, the siege of 614. And you kind of, you know, want to describe and lay the ground of what happens to the Persians, right? They're coming in and they're going to conquer the city away from uh, Byzantine Christian control.
1: Right, right. Yeah, the Sassanid Persians under uh, Chosro II is the name of the Persian emperor. Um, And it seems to be, it's quite interesting, doesn't, doesn't really seem to be a holy war per se. It's not, you know, Zoroastrian against Christian whatnot, although there are, there are mentions of these things in the sources, but um, this is a, a very large-scale, um, wide-ranging dispute between the Byzantines and the Persians. Um, and it's fought all over the place. It's fought in Iraq, it's fought in the Levant, it's fought in Asia Minor, it's fought in Persia proper. Um, m- many armies moving back and forth over the course of 20 years. Um, so really, really nasty um, fighting in between. And in 614, in the midst of this, the byzantines lose jerusalem and it's not just jerusalem they lose uh, caesarea martima on the coast um all these other cities and then their their general Sharbaraz um, eventually marches on jerusalem itself and, and puts it under siege and that's and the, and you know the 614 is used at the date i use everyone always argues about this was it late 613 was it you know we don't have an ex- 614 is kind of like a generally accepted thing but around that time that's when it happens
0: Okay. Now, um, there is something that you, uh, about the siege, there's kind of a massacre and, and as you know, the, the Jews are involved, this is what, what, what happened, what, what happens or purportedly happens here?
1: Yeah. So the story is, it's interesting. We have one source that is incredibly detailed, um, from, from a guy who claims to have talked to somebody who was there personally. Um, and it's and it goes through all the details, but it's it's the best source we have, and there's a lot of questions about whether it's accurate or not. And then you have all these other sources that are very short, that you know, one paragraph, three paragraphs, one not? So if we take their story in aggregate, what it seems to say is, there had been before the major attack began, there had been some domestic disputes in the city uh, between Christians. And Jews, and it had wasn't really about religion so much, as wrapped up in kind of this curious gang violence. It was almost the sources talk about the youths of the city rising up, so it could be sort of fighting the man, that sort of thing, right? So there's this unsettling that happens before it, and then when the Persians arrive and actually place the city under siege and beginning attacking the walls, there's the accusation that the Jews, who are local, help them out. They're so mad at the Byzantine governor, right? um that they say well we're going to help the attackers um i i'm trying to remember if the source says i think the supposition is is that they did something like repel down the walls so they kind of leave the city and join the persians on the outside and i would guess give them some operational information some intelligence and say hey you know the wall might be weak over there this door you know bob never locks the door so you might want to try that one you know that sort of thing and then the persians break through the walls and they um and they conduct this this massacre inside the city that massacre seems to have been um done by the persians uh, most, i think all the sources say it's the persian soldiers who do that and they go through the town and they're killing everyone they see and then they play a little trick on them where they you know they, the sources say they actually get tired of killing because it's you know it's hard work so they call out they say hey we know you're hiding if you come out now we'll spare your lives which is kind of the oldest trick in the book right they all come out they pull out, they say, well, anyone with a knowledge of architecture who can rebuild the city will keep you. And then they kill everyone else. Um, Or they take them prisoner and they bring them to the Mamilla pool to the West of the city proper, which is still there today. You can can go visit it. Um, And this is where it gets, this is where the, the Jews come back into the story, right? So supposedly you have this group of Christians down in this, in this, in this pit with water, right? And so it's, it's a miserable thing. And According to these Christian sources, right? The Jews ask the Persian guards, You get the guards around the perimeter guarding these guys, right? Asks them to ransom. Can can you, can I ransom some of these Jews? Some of these Christians, you know, I would like to pay for this Christian to get out of the pit. Uh, And the Persians like, fine, we'll take your money. Um, And then it goes on to say, well, if a Jew ransoms a Christian, they gave him a choice. They said, I will ransom you and you can go free if you convert to Judaism, Right. Um, At this point, the Christians refuse, and then if they refuse, then the the Jew, whoever ransomed them, would kill them, right? Um, And then the sources go into these lurid details about these mass butcheries of all the Christians, and the numbers fly all over the place in terms of how many Christians were in that pit. Was it a few hundred? Was it a few thousand? Et cetera, et cetera. And then they all kind of come down with this judgment that the Jews – um went after these christians and killed them and then as you can imagine there's all these allusions back to the new testament and that they're bringing the crucifixion scene back into it and all of this kind of stuff so it's really tough to read these sources because part of you is just saying whoa the bias is is so pronounced right I mean, you can you can see it in the way they're phrasing this. You can see it in the New Testament references. They're clearly trying to draw a line to to Jesus and you know these these ancient um, um, events, um, and and they're and they're couching it so it's very difficult to to interpret and find out what is actually going on. Um, what I found is that every major source from the period talks about this happening in some degree. Sometimes really vague. Sometimes really specific. And so my, my interpretation is something happened. I think something happened. But getting a handle on the scale, I think, is, is virtually impossible. Just because of the tenor of the sources, you can, you can only really trust them halfway.
0: Right. So as you relay in the book, I mean, you kind of relay the story, what you just said, and you go a little bit more in depth. But, you know, what the I guess what the truth, you know, the veracity, of how far it goes, as you're saying, it's kind of hard to ascertain, really.
1: It's it's tough. And, you know, and, and I try in the book, I say, look, essentially, look, if you put yourself in the position of these Jewish residents, right, the more you read about how Jews were oppressed during the reign of Heraclius, I mean, in, in all of these major urban centers, they get oppressed by them. And then later on, he's going to come back and oppress them even more. You can say, look, I I, I, I get it. You have a chance to kind of strike a mortal blow here by joining the Persians and attacking the city. I can totally see why, why they would, they would want to do it. Right. This is your moment to, to, you know, resist. It looks like Heraclius is going down. If the Persians win this war, maybe you're looking forward to a, you know, a more peaceful society, a bit more tolerance. And so, so the motivation is definitely there. Um, it's just that, you know, the details and the, you know, that's where, you know, and, and I, historians have kind of been over the years, have taken different approaches to it. Sometimes it kind of gets forgotten. Sometimes it gets talked about a lot it just seems to go through shifts.
0: Okay, so first of all, the Persians at this time—this is like this is the time period of Muhammad and Islam. These Persians are not Muslim, right? They're right. as as you mentioned. I think you mentioned right. that. Just to clarify that, so I think you kind of alluded to there's there's more to discuss in 614. If you want, I mean, there's the, there's a lot of how many killed and what happens and you know what kind of the, what what kind of happens to the wall and the defenses of Jerusalem. But um, you know, you, you alluded to this just to, to clarify this. So then, Heracles comes back. About six thirty, right. and then, as you mentioned, so he go. What happens to the Jews in between, and then he comes back, like you said, he goes full force against them.
1: Right. So it's so it's it's a strange story. So he he's on his victory parade, right? He's um, the Persians have basically come to terms. Um, he has um, he has he's gotten his cities back. He's won the war, and he is processing down to Jerusalem because he's rec- he's recovered um, one of the stolen relics. The Persians had taken a piece of what's called the true cross uh, purportedly wood that Jesus was crucified on. Right. Um, he's, he's liberated that from the Persians and he's going to bring it back to the holy city. Right. So he's processing down there. It's kind of this glorious moment. And supposedly he meets some local Jews on the road uh, on the way to Jerusalem. And they come up to him. They're like, Hey, look, can we like make a deal so we can live in peace? Cause, cause we don't want any more of these problems. And he's, magnanimous. And he says, look, the war is over. And sure. Yeah. Look, I'm going to tolerate you. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And then he gets to Jerusalem and the Christian monks pull him aside and, and, and everything changes. They're like, no, it can't be fine. And they start telling the story. Well, this is what the Jews did to us. And these are our grievances. You have to promise to deal with them. And, and Heraclius responds, well, I just made a deal with them. I just promised them that I would, you know, I would treat them okay. Um, and and he says, plus, isn't it, you know, kind of wrong to murder people? I'm, we're not supposed to be doing that, um, which is rich coming from him because he had murdered plenty of people. But at the at this moment, he says, you know, I, mean, I shouldn't be doing this. And the monks just make this very odd promise. They're like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. If you murder them, don't worry. We'll we'll do a fast for you and we'll pray for you for the rest of our lives. So you'll get to heaven, no problem. You don't have to worry about that, right? And again, you you listen to these stories, and you're like, really? But as I found, one of these fasts is actually maintained for for decades. Um, it, it actually did take place. They did have this tradition of fasting. So you know, hmm, maybe there's something to the story. Um, well, anyway, this changes his mind, and his you know his heart is hardened, and he decides you know I'm going to go after the Jews once more, and that is followed by. Um, It depends. It's a little controversial whether you want to call it a pogrom, whether you just want to call it um, mass um, mass conversion. He sends out an order to forcibly baptize all of the Jews in North Africa. um, And we presume that that includes those in the Levant as well. And so you get these stories, some of them um, purportedly from from Jewish sources talking about this and saying, yeah, forcible baptism, um, often on pain of death. And, um, and this kind of real, this, this Heraklian oppression kind of comes back. Um, so I don't know that story about him being temporarily merciful, you know, and then being persuaded to change his mind. It, it sounds like nice, like he's had a change of heart. I, I'm not sure I buy it myself. Um, this guy is, seems to be, I think you could write it. Well, entire books have been written about it, about what Heraclius did against Jewish communities. It's pretty severe throughout his entire reign. Um, and so yeah, after getting the holy city back, it's it's back to business as normal. It's even worse than before. Um, these communities are being punished once again.
0: Okay, so uh, although you're a military historian we kind of skipped over the tactics and the siege and that kind of thing. but what about the fort- I mean you could talk about it if you want. but what about the um, fortifications of Jerusalem? Those are kind of um, you know damaged uh, if you will in 614 and what happens in between 614 and 630 and then afterwards is the city still vulnerable to another right. attack?
1: Yeah, it's my theory that it, that it is because um I found no no indication in the sources of Heraclius paying for any repairs. Um when he gets to Jerusalem, he he does pony up money for reconstruction of some of these churches because the Persians had sent a lot of the churches inside the city on fire. So um so the holy buildings are rebuilt, but there's there's no money requisitioned for the walls. And in fact, Heraclius doesn't actually have a ton of cash at the moment to pay for this. Um and the tradition was is that you know these garrison commanders of Byzantine frontier towns and that's what Jerusalem is at this point it really is a frontier a bulwark against arabia. Um they're supposed to pay for the repairs themselves. So this wall was not adequately repaired. Archaeologists have af- actually dug down and found on the northern side um the the residue from the 614 siege. They've actually found the rubble and and, uh, what they claim is that if it wasn't ever rebuilt, if anything, it became like a garbage heap. So people maybe, if you imagine like a gap in the wall, like a large gap, you know, maybe people throwing stones back into it, throwing trash into it, but no one really concentrating all that much on it. And that seems to be the state of the walls when the next invasion comes, not really fixed up. You still have that big weakness.
0: Okay. So, um, I mentioned earlier we have muhammad and the rise of islam so we probably should mention that when when does that begin tell the listeners about that um we can discuss a little bit sunday uh, the the uh different uh sunni muslim shia we can discuss a little bit about that uh and um how that relates to the story here but when the Arabs and the muslims started suddenly they're coming and they're now coming to jerusalem
1: right yeah and this this is all happening simultaneously right so the first Muslim scholars argue about this. The first very verifiable date we have for Muhammad is 622. That's the year of the Hijra where he leaves Mecca and goes on his migration to to Yathrib which becomes the city of Medina. So that's 622 so that's after the the Persian siege. Uh but it's 8 years before Heraclius makes it back. The year Heraclius comes back in 630, that's the year that Muhammad returns to Mecca. Um so he's busy in Arabia and then he dies 2 years later in 632. So all this is going on while Muhammad is consolidating his power in Arabia, right? When he dies in 632, the the control of the faith, guidance of the faith will go over to the so-called first four caliphs, the successors, uh, the first one being Abu Bakr. uh, And they will start the outward expansion in which you actually start leaving um, leaving Arabia, moving north, moving into Egypt. Um, and that expansion is what's going to ensnare Jerusalem in the year 638. Just six years after Muhammad dies is when the Arabs are going to arrive outside the holy city.
0: Okay. So um, like I said, in the book, though, you do kind of go um, take a little bit of a, of a detour. You discuss the different uh, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims. You kind of, I mean, why do you do that? How does that relate exactly? How does that play in that whole uh, background?
1: Yeah, you know you, you don't have that split until um until later in the 600s but the idea is that the Arabs are are not a unified people. Um when we think of Arabia converting, right, and this nation kind of rising up and conquering half the known world, um certainly you have the Arabs who have converted to the faith. Um but you have Arabs who did not, Arabs who are living on the fringes of Byzantine territory who are Christian. Um, and who are not necessarily on with this with this new program, and there is fighting that goes on between them. Um, and then later on, the Muslim world gets disunified over questions of leadership. Um, and it really happens in this, in the year 661 that you get the beginnings of this kind of firm split, those who wanna who believed in the leadership of this this guy named Ali um, and um, and those who did not. Um, and the Sunni Shia story becomes really important in the Middle Ages because you have to start sussing out, which group of Muslims is in which place at what time, what's their ethnicity, what is their confession, um, what do they believe, what do they tolerate, what are they antagonistic against. Um, and so that that Sh- Sunni-Shia dynamic plays out in an extraordinary number of ways. And most medievalists will tell you, if you talk about all the fighting in the Middle East, that that a huge amount of the fighting was, was among Muslim adherents. It was between them. Ah, uh, they're very often fighting each other. Are arguably fighting each other more than they ever fought someone like the Crusaders, for example. So establishing, you have you kind of have to start off and establish that there's those tensions. There's those things that are going to ripple and 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 cause great change later on.
0: Yeah, okay. So most of that will lead to the book. Any of those interested, it'll be in the book. There'll be a link in the show's notes to purchase the book. Okay, but we'll kind of jump, and we're going to jump in a minute, kind of to the late 10th century. So, but what happens in between? We were last in Jerusalem in 630 until really the you know 10th century, the not, late 900s. What happens to Jerusalem in between those years?
1: You have in those years um, a, what I would argue, a relatively peaceful city under Sunni Muslim rule, at least until you get to the 960s, when it's going to become, um, well, 960s, 970s, when it's going to turn over to Shia rule. But even then, um, you have relative peace. You have... Christians, Jews, and Muslims living in the city at the same time, coexisting. And the reason for this, and, I, and Muslims are very proud of this, and I, I think there's good reason to be proud of this, is that the story goes that when the Muslims take the city in 638, the Caliph, his name is Umar ibn Khattab, right? Uh, Umar comes into the city, and he makes a deal with the with the local um, with the local patriarch to give says if if you have Christian churches, you can retain them right you have christian liberties you can keep your property and you can worship and you can do whatever you want uh we're just going to take the temple mount and we're going to which was being used as a garbage dump at the time we're going to clean it off and we're going we're going to build there and the, the patriarch says well you know what what about the jews cuz we threw the jews out um and so in the beginning there's a, this document it's called umar's assurance where he he assures the christians that they get they keep their rights and there's no mention of the jews right But if you read the Arabic documents, they talk about how the Jews were actually let back into the city. And it seems what happened is that maybe Umar came in and said, okay, this is a situation on the ground. Fine. No Jews. I got it. And then within a couple of years, changed his mind and said, you know what? If they want to live here, that's fine. I'll collect taxes from them like everybody else. So Jews moved back in. And so really from the 640s on, Christians, Muslims, and Jews living next to each other in Jerusalem each worshiping in different places of the city. Uh, the Jews are building synagogues. The Christians are building churches. The Muslims build their holy spots, the uh, the Dome of the Rock, Al-Aqsa Mosque up on the Temple Mount. And, um, and you have this broad coexistence that's really only interrupted by kind of local problems, um, tax issues. You don't like a governor, and so there's a small riot or something like this. All usually quieted down and calmed down relatively quickly. And that goes on, you know, the 600s, the 700s, the 800s, the 900s. Is this uh, generally
0: because the Muslims are more tolerant of Judaism and Jews at the time than the Christians?
1: This is – <laughs> that's a great question because this is a highly controversial um, – if you look around the rest of the Near East, there's a huge argument about how tolerant Muslims really were, Right. Uh, because there is this concept put out of about, about the dimmy and dimitude and this idea of, of if you are not a muslim you're you're living under this harsh repressive circumstances right and that certainly seems to be the case in in a great many places what i found is it's not the case in jerusalem N- not that there wasn't it, clearly that the muslims are in charge you're going to be taxed more there's going to be tariffs that are uncomfortable you're not going to get to live exactly where you want there is going to be um you know, um, um seizures of, 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 little properties and, and things like that. You, you know, They're in charge. Uh, but what I found is it's, I don't want to call it an oasis of tolerance because I think that's pushing it too far. Uh, but it seems to have been different. And I would argue it's because of the religious significance of these buildings, this idea that everyone has the ability to have a place to worship in the city and we need to maintain that. And if that's your base, then, then there's, you can only be so repressive, right? You, you can only shove so much. And then the economic argument is probably second. Um, and this is what I get into when I get to the 10th century and the Shia rule, the economic importance of these Christians and especially the Jews in the region is it's, it's gotta be at the top of their minds. There are major revenues coming into the city because of this diverse population. So throwing them out, I mean, the Crusaders throw everyone out in the in the 12th century and and their economy crashes. It's a ghost town. Um, I think that the Sunni rulers are a little smarter than that.
0: OK, so now we'll, we'll jump forward. Actually, one more thing I did want to mention. And we'll discuss this more later. You, you did mention how it's like this, there's tolerant and there's Jews, Muslims and Christians. That's kind of something you argue throughout the book. And it's kind of like your argument that they uh, uh, coexisted peacefully. Bes- besides for uh sporadic instances of violence and i'm sure there is you know arguments made on the other side of your, argue, yes. your argument so sure there's yes. pushback to that so i don't know if we, we'll discuss that we will dedicate some time at the end of the podcast pull we'll learn stay tuned we'll discuss that but i just wanted to mention because you already alluded to that that mm-hmm. is something that is a thread running through the book so and you kind of mentioned this a couple times okay so in yes. the 960s uh the christians the byzantines returned right this is kind of where as you mentioned we were kind of we had a couple centuries. Now we're middle of the 10th century, and now we're going to get kind of the, uh, I guess, the seesawing back and forth again
1: a little bit. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, the Byzantines they it's, they lost a lot of land to the Muslims. They, I mean, they lose Egypt, which which I refer to in class as the checkbook of the ancient world, right? I mean, that's where all the money is, right, from the Nile River. They lose Egypt. They lose Syria. They lose the Levant, right? Um, they 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 start to lose some eventually the Turks are going to take half of Asia minor away. So you're losing all of this territory and all of this revenue and they would love to get it back. They would love to. And so inevitably you are going to get military campaigns down there. Um, It's interesting how long it takes to generate that because Byzantium has its own issues um, going on in those centuries, but eventually you do get a couple invasions by the emperors and they get close, but they never quite get there. They never, they never, actually get to the city. And so that doesn't mean they're not involved in the city. We know they're sending money down there. They have representatives there. Some of the governors of Jerusalem are actually writing to the Byzantine emperor. So there's a lot of connections, but militarily, they never get their hands back on it. They try a couple times. They never quite get there. They get, um, they get about South to tire at one point. Um, so, you know, they're up in Lebanon and they, they can kind of, you can kind of look and say, it's not too far away, but they, they, they never get down to, um, to the actual city itself.
0: Right okay so I guess I was wrong they didn't get to go back and forth yet we'll get to the crusades it it just yeah. was they were they were writing them letters right okay now uh but something a a instance of violence in the city is by caliph uh, al-hakim right if i'm pronouncing his name correct yeah, and yeah. that's something that is an important so to speak uh, unfortunate event uh it's, when does that occur and what occurs
1: yeah so that's in 1009 and uh, his name is yeah al-hakim and we call him the mad caliph um because depending on how you look at it he was either well, he's a messianic figure if you're, if you're a member of the Druze. Um, if, if you're not, then he is um, looks like a madman who, for whatever reason, sort of snaps and proceeds to eliminate members of his um, own advisors, um, the local government, and throughout these cities um, takes down all of these holy spots. And so 1009, there is this sort of reckoning in Jerusalem where under Al-Hakim's command, um, his guys go into town and they destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulcher uh, and they burn it to the ground. Um, and of course, because this is the middle ages can't, can't stress enough. All these things that happen in the middle ages, most of them, at some point, some source is going to chime in and say it was the fault of the Jews. And this just, it's the tenor of the literature. And this is one of them. There's this accusation that the Jews are involved. They're ratting out something Christians are doing in the church and it's idolatry and you need to come stop this idolatry. Um, and, and that's, that's a whole controversy, but whatever the reason he comes in and he you know, he, he, um, he destroys it. And, um, and it's, it's not just Christians that he goes after. He goes after Jews as well. He goes after Sunni Muslims. He goes after Shia. It really, it's kind of open season on everyone. Um, and so you get this, this odd period that is just, just horrifying. And what makes it, what makes it really stick is that the news about this, it's such a shocking thing because this is, If it's the sepulchre church, this is the tomb of Jesus. This is where pilgrims go visit. And now to hear it's been destroyed, right? That news cascades back to Western Europe and it starts popping up in these Western sources. And you get this outrage um, back in the West and you get these demands of, you know, we need to do something about this. Someone needs to go to Jerusalem and set this right. This is where some scholars chime in and say they want to see the beginnings of the Crusades in, in this event. Cause they want to say, well, is that like the first moment where Christians said, hmm, we need to go to the, we need to go to Jerusalem and, uh, you know, with a military force. Uh, and there's an argument about whether that's, it's that or if something else sparked the crusades, but, but it certainly got that kind of importance. Everyone is upset about this. Al-Hakim the Mad. He ends up wandering in the desert and disappearing. Um, so, and nobody really knows. They find a cloak later on with a bunch of stab holes in it and blood, um, but again, it depends on your persuasion, as I said, if, you, if you're Druze, then he, he disappeared and you know and um, he will return. Uh, if you're not, then he was murdered, probably by one of the people he offended in his killings. You guess. And,
0: yeah, now, and again, going back to that argument that I mentioned and that you kind of alluded to, this is you view this more as an kind of an outlier than as more of the standard of what was going on there.
1: Yeah, and that's where I think people who are really going to disagree with the book, that's that's going to be their their bone to pick. The um, We tend to look back at Jerusalem at these horrific, shocking things. And what happened in 1009 was horrific and shocking. I mean, you're talking about thousands of people dead, uh, mass destruction of holy sites, um, all kinds of upheaval. My argument is, yes, you do have some of these, but across 700 years, you don't actually have that many of them. Um, we just are drawn to them because they're so well-known and they're notorious, they're infamous, whatever word you want to use. Um, but in total count, there's really not that many. And I try to stress, you know, 700 years is a long, long time. And if you say, okay, well, there were, you know, four or five of these climactic events over the course of 700 years. Well, okay, I got it. It's not good, but wow. I mean, there are some cities like Damascus, or if you look at Baghdad, where Damascus is the one that's most prominent in my mind. I mean, you were talking about sieges multiple times within everyone's lifetime, right? They just, somebody needs to write a book on Damascus and the attacks on it. I think you would run out of paper, right? I mean, it gets attacked all the time. Baghdad constantly has violence. I mean, it's very dangerous places. And I like I say, well, yeah, these moments in time, Jerusalem was very dangerous, but most of the time it really wasn't. And so there's some, there's one review that came in they're like, ah, you know, and 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 that was the point they made. They said, how can you ignore these big climactic events? And my point is, I'm not ignoring them. I'm just saying that they were episodic.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure we'll get back to more of that later on. Okay. So another thing, uh, until we get to the First crusade, that's jumping around. Uh, and, the, and the book does, I, I'll just talk about the book for a minute here. The book does jump around, but the book also does double a little, you know, a little bit on some of these topics, even more than a little bit in depth than mm-hmm. we're going here. This is just a podcast. Uh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> in the 11th century, uh, how, how is the Jews there? I know you discuss a little bit in the in the book some uh, strife and tension between Karaite Jews and uh, regular rabbinic Jews, and right. you also mentioned the Goin, the head of the yeshiva, in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to mention this. This is something you do discuss a bit.
1: Yeah. So you've got this um, this fantastic treasure trove, really, of documents called the the Genitza texts um that are um that are unearthed in cairo and now they sit at cambridge and just uh, thousands of these of these letters um that are written back and forth between jewish communities and it really gives you a really a an excellent window into what that community was like not only in jerusalem but in um Caesarea and tyre and cairo and these other places they're writing back and forth to each other with concerns and you know and You know, hey, I'm broke. Could you lend me some money? Or I got myself in some legal trouble. Could you help me out? Or I'm going to move over to Cairo. You know, you know, have a place I can stay. Um, Really, the the nuts and bolts of social and cultural life, and and you can read these things, and it seems like there is a there is a pretty vital Jewish presence in the holy city. And what I mean by that is it's not just i don't see jews just kind of sitting there kind of heads down right um you know with the, with their muslim governor looking over their shoulder but engaging in public debate and having different schools of thought and and you know and, and having a yeshiva and and being able to talk about these things pretty publicly without being persecuted um and and i find that remarkable and it happens at the same time that the same thing is happening with with the muslim community as well they're they're starting to uh, to build schools and they they build a law school right um and so everybody's talking everybody's getting along but then there are all these controversies that pop up that i think in the scope of near eastern history are are kind of s- small ball type stuff right i mean you have a um you know a local who's in charge of the community and in old fustat um, well, it's this one guy, but this other guy's claiming to. Okay. And so they're having this kind of argument and this fight, you know. Um, it, it it's the stuff that never makes it into big survey books. But what it shows is that there's there's active dialogue and travel going back and forth constantly, and it's quite remarkable. The problem is that there are some tensions and there are um some some regional changes that are going on. Um life can be tough in these places. I mean, these Geniza documents talk about how there, there is some oppression of Jews and of Christians as well, where you just don't get to do everything you want to do. There's a lot of suspicion, people getting arrested on the say so. So I, you know, I saw somebody doing this, got to bring them before the judge. Right. Um, and so you've got that kind of stuff. I mentioned, you know, there's various parts of sometimes anti-Jewish, um, Things that come out, particularly on the taxation, you see that a lot, um, levying the taxes, because the Jewish communities in the Near East, their commercial contacts, because they have such history in the place, heavy commercial dealings. And so it's attractive. You want to tax it. You want that money for yourself. And so several of these letters say, you know, geez, they they jacked up the taxes to us. What's remarkable is when the taxes go up, the Jews petition the Muslim governor of Jerusalem. And if that doesn't work, they petition the caliph in Cairo. And and sometimes he gives them relief, which to me was absolutely amazing. Every time I read one of these, said, this is unbelievable. They write and they say, look, our taxes are a little too high. And the Shia Caliph in Cairo says, you know what? I agree. My governor's doing a bad job. I'm going to tell him to lower your taxes, give you a little bit of relief. Wow. I mean, that's so I see a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Um, the problem is, is that there are some moments where things get a little dicey. In terms of what's going on in the region if the oppression is too much and then there are other cities in the region that frankly are more attractive in many ways i mean we i, mean, I love jerusalem it's such a vibrant huge place right but in the middle ages it it, it never numbered more than thirty thousand people uh it's it's small it's off the trade routes right um you could live there or you could live in entire or you could live in Cairo, which is this like brand new city that the uh, the Fatimids built, this glorious thing, where you can go see the, the cosmopolitan wonderfulness of Baghdad. And so in time, a lot of the Jewish scholars leave, and a lot of the Muslim scholars leave. They go along with them. And I think I tell the story of one where the um, the head of the, the Muslim law school actually goes to the head of the yeshiva and says, hey, I'm packing up. I'm going to go up here. You should come with me, man, You know, because this is a better city. And they're like, okay, we'll go together, which... I just, you know, I just started laughing. I'm like, these are the stories you never hear. It's always they're killing each other, they hate each other, religious violence, and here they are. That no, th- they're friends and they're looking out for each other.
0: Yeah, which is you know important to tell. I guess you know we can get it back in. You know the pushback could be okay, true, but you know still, still, you know what was really going on or what was important or whatever. I'm, I'm just right. pointing out that you said, the yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, e- exactly. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's because Jerusalem is really the holy city, right? And that's, you know, to Jews and then, you know, they have the Christians, the Muslims, and that's what's kind of going on. Like you said, even though it's kind of the other cities are bigger and grander. Um, oh, and right. it's, Okay. Now the, the Turks show up, the Turks come on the scene. Now we're in, the, we know, with the Turks, if you want to mention the Turks, not the Ottoman Turks, right? Just the, 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 right. the Ottomans are going to be later, the Turks. Yes. And then the, we're going to get to the Crusades and kind of the Turks kind of as you put it in the book, I think kind of somewhat maybe set the stage for the Crusades, right?
1: Yeah, arguably. And, and, you know, Crusade historians agree on nothing um but but one of the traditional uh, explanations is that it's the turkish onslaught that that really changes things right uh, they beat the byzantines at the battle of manzikert um and that's kind of like this major breaking point um, in, in 1081 that that ushers in the you know the western interest but before that they you know they come to jerusalem these uh, so-called Selchuk turks um they they dominate the the levant they take control of the holy city and when they do which probably happened in 1073 so this is 26 years before the first crusade arrives in, pardon me, arrives in Jerusalem in 1073, they, they arrive there and it seems to be pretty peaceful. You know, they blockade the city, which is kind of the first thing you do when you want a town, you just line up your soldiers outside and then you, you put the news to them and say, well, you can surrender and you'll be fine or you can hold out and starve to death. And the city just surrenders. And so the Sunnis take control of the city in kind of a bloodless enterprise doesn't seem to be any kind of reclamations when they get in there. It's not like they persecute the Shia. It's not like they, um, they persecute the Jews or the Christians that are there and you still have this diverse population. Just kind of take control of it. The only violence that happens is when the, the um, some of the, the Shia uh, take possession of, of the, of the, um, one of the warlords families, they, they throw them in a jail cell. And so this guy, Atsis, he comes back in 1077 and there's a bloodletting of the garrison. He just wipes it out. But again, I, I argue, I think, I think he's mostly killing Shia. I don't think he has a grudge against the other fates. He's mad that somebody threw his wife in jail. I would be pretty mad too, I suppose. Um, And so you've got this Turkish control of the city. um, And you've got kind of this, this flip-flop that goes on Shia, you know, to Sunni, you know, and eventually back to Shia. Um, And in all of that, you have to leave it up to interpretation as to what's going on there, right? The local chronicles are talking about these things that are happening and yeah, there's some, there's some issues, there's some strife and, and this happened and that was unfortunate. whatnot. not? But the view in the West is very, very different. If you read exclusively Latin chronicles over being produced over in, in England and France and the whole, in, in the Roman empire um you would think this is a city that is um, dominated by Muslims. They're, they're systematically oppressing and killing everyone disemboweling Christians, subjecting them to horrible things, and you have to go over and you have to save the city. And the reality is, is well, you've got a different owner, but life kind of continues the way it had before.
0: Okay. So that's kind of, as you said, what was going on in Jerusalem and what the Christians in Western Europe thought was going on in Jerusalem. Right. So then we get to the first crusade. You, keep, you mentioned a bunch of crusade historians. There are many, there's a, there's a lot of literature, a lot been written and researched on the crusades. This is not a crusade podcast, although this is Jerusalem is very relevant to the Crusades, of course. Right. It's what they were added out to. So let's just give a, a brief, you know, I don't know, description, summation, synopsis, whatever of the Crusade of the First Crusade uh, specifically, yeah. and you uh, know how it pertains, how it relates to Jerusalem.
1: Okay. Um, so yeah. So the the reasons why the Crusade launched there's there's at least a dozen reasons, and my argument is that they're all right and they're all wrong. Nobody can really agree on what the prime mover was. One of them is, um, I mentioned earlier, the, the Battle of Manzikert. I think I gave you the wrong date. It's not 1081, it's 1071. Um, the, the idea that the Turks are moving on Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire reaches out to Rome and asks for help, right? That's kind of the traditional standard thing. And then the Pope goes to Claremont in 1095 and gives this impassioned address. You know, our, our fellow Christians are asking for help. We have to go save them, right? There's been huge pushback against that. Um, there's lots of other aspects to why the crusade set off. There's apocalypticism, there's anti-Judaism, there is, um, the economic factor. There's, there's a whole host of them. And I think they all have a little bit of resonance of truth. Um, but for whatever reason, you get this massive army that is created in the West and sets out in 1096 to retake the Holy city from Muslim control. Um, and there's, there's two main waves of it. The first one is called the so-called peasants crusade, or people call it now the people's crusade because peasant is seen as sort of pejorative. Um, it's this wave of uh, farmers who are really unequipped to do anything. They're led by, um, by, by a group of nobles and men with fighting experience, but they, they go, they, they go to Constantinople, they enter Asia minor and they're wiped out. Right. Uh, The first wave is a disaster. And then the second major wave comes the so-called princes crusade led by multiple princes from around Europe. Um, and that one succeeds. That one cuts through Asia Minor, um, retakes the city of um, Antioch, um, crawls down the Levantine coastline, retakes several cities, some by deals, some with massacres, and then ends up at Jerusalem in the summer of 1099. Uh, and that that begins the, the great siege of Jerusalem uh, in, in 1099 that that culminates with the Crusaders um, moving into the city and and conducting this massacre that is well known, I, I call it the original sin of the crusades, um, uh, because it is is probably the best known event of the entire crusading period, the sack of 1099.
0: Okay, before we get to want to clarify one thing, you mentioned they went through Asia Minor. If you could explain to the listeners what Asia Minor, where Asia Minor Oh, was, sorry, and,
1: yeah, modern yeah. day Turkey, right? Uh so they start in Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, uh they, they cross over and um into, into Asia and, and then carve their way through the mountains. Um, you know, they, first they go to Nicaea and they help liberate that with, with Byzantine, um, um, troops. And then they, they fight some battles in the, in the mountains and then they emerge in, in, Antioch, which today is, is in Turkey. Um, uh, very Southern bit right before you get into, um, into Lebanon. Um, and so once they're, once they pass Antioch, um, in emerging from it in 1099, then it's straight down the coast, um, through modern day Lebanon and Israel.
0: Okay, I'll, I will mention once we're talking about the the beginning of the Crusades. For those interested, I have a podcast with Professor Fram Kannervogel on the killing of the the Jews when they in in uh, Germany. Oh, uh, the in, Rhineland the massacres. Yeah. Yes, the Rhineland yeah. massacres that the yeah. uh, that 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 happened. Okay,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because obviously that's a big part of the Crusades. Also, you know, unfortunately, what went on in Europe—the killing of the Jews.
1: Huge part of it. Huge part. And that's why it's, you know, you, you start talking about motivations for these things. Right. Uh, Count Amico, who is who's leading this. Right. I mean, he is we, we have his purported words where he's saying, if we're going after the enemy's Christ, let's start with the ones who live right next door. I mean, it is deliberate targeted massacres of these Jewish populations. And that's why you can't take that out. You say, well, I don't you can't say it's just to defend the Byzantium because you've got leaders of the crusade saying we're here to kill Jews. Um, so yeah, absolutely crucial part of it. It, I mean, it gets off to such a horrific start. Um, you, you know, it's not a surprise that it ends in horror as well.
0: Okay. So they show up, uh, at Jerusalem and what happens then?
1: So they break through the walls. Well, they don't break, they don't break through the walls. They overtop one of the walls, uh, with a siege tower. And then they come in through the Zion gate in the South as well. So they're coming from the North and they're coming from the South. Um, and they're pouring through, um, as they come in, they are pushing the defenders into the streets, and the defenders are fighting what we would call a delaying action. So, if you imagine the citizens are kind of behind them running for the Temple Mount because it's fortified. You know, it's elevated terrain. it's safer. Um, and the and the and the garrison is is fighting a delay as the Crusaders are pushing forward and they're and they're backing up towards the mount. Um, in time, you get this population of probably about three thousand people packed onto the Temple Mount um it's it's great because that's it's that's fortified but the, the downside is is if it's breached now you're trapped you have nowhere to go um because the, you can't climb over the walls the, the drop into the kidron valley is is it's just just massive um so they get massacred on the temple mount um now before that in the north in the jewish district of the town the juvari as it was called um which is today the muslim quarter of jerusalem but 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 in the 11th century it's it's where the jews are living Um, We know that the Jews are on the wall. They're actually actively defending the city because they don't want these guys in their town. They have heard what these crusaders have done everywhere else they've gone. They know the reputation and they they don't want this. Right. Um, So many of those Jews die fighting on the walls and the rest run. Some of them run to um, synagogue, which is then burned down. And the allegation is it's burned down with Jews inside of it. So you've got this, this one small massacre of Jews here, and then the rest of the group is pushed in the temple Mount and they're, they're eliminated there. And the guess is, is that most of the people on the temple Mount, it's just a guess they're, they're probably Muslims. Um, most of them, there's a group of 300 that managed to escape. They climb up onto the roof of Al-Aqsa Mosque um, and, 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 you know, nighttime is falling and they climb up there and the next day um, they're promised uh, safe conduct by the crusaders. You know, the, theoretically the the bloodlust is supposed to be died down now and um they say oh no you can come down we'll let you go and um and 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 they kill them instead um so the safe conduct is violated so you have these this this killing that goes on the big question is was there so there, so day 1 is breaking into the city and this massacre right day 2 is the killing of these 300 people on the roof of the mosque the question is what happened on day 3 because there is one Western source that claims that on day three, the army then systematically went through the city and basically killed everyone else, um, which if true, the number he gives is 10,000. And there's an argument about this because the um, there are some Hebrew documents that seem to allude to this, but then there's Arabic documents that don't make any mention of it. So it's become this kind of controversial thing. Was there a third day massacre or not? Um, I kind of, I take a pass on it on the book and say, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't, I don't really know, but whatever it is, those days one and two, for sure, you have, you have over 3000 people being, being cut down in the city.
0: Now, I don't know if we mentioned this, how many uh, Christians, how many people go on this crusade when they leave and how many end up showing up at Jerusalem?
1: So they start the, the number could be anywhere between 70 and 90,000. Um, it's it's a fair it's a fair number of people now. How many of those are soldiers? How many of those are camp followers? That sort of thing is is a good question. Uh, but by the time they get to Jerusalem, there's about fourteen thousand left. You've lost an awful lot.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and you know you mentioned a couple of numbers. There, so how many are killed in Jerusalem, and then what happens in the aftermath? Do, I think you mentioned this much earlier. So they throw everybody out—Muslims, Jews, no one's allowed in the city besides Christians. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And and again, that's that's also controversial because some of the there are indications that some of the Muslims were maybe kept as slaves. And then the Hebrew documents I I referred to, there's these these other Geniza texts that seem to indicate that many of the Jews were kept as hostages and that they were later ransomed to relatives in Egypt and in um, Ascalon. So there seem to be a lot who survive. Um, but we, what we don't know is if they survive the immediacy of it, are they then sold into slavery? Uh, are they killed later on? It's hard to know. What we do know is that at at a, at some point there is a law that is passed that that forbids Jews and Muslims from entering Jerusalem. They they can't come in. At first it's um, it's not even they're not even trading with them. Eventually that'll be relaxed and you can be you can come in and trade if you pay a tax, pay a tariff on the way in and out. Um, but in the beginning it's it's Christian only city. Um, they, they establish essentially a theocracy. Um, there will be a secular leader of it, but, but it's pretty clear. It's a Christian city now run by Christian law. And so none of these others are welcome. And as I mentioned, it's, it's a ghost town because what happens is after the crusade is over, most of these people go home, right? I mean, they, they've been gone for years from their house. They're from Northern France or they're from the low countries or they they, they go home and there's a skeleton force left in the Holy Land, and you've got about 3,000 soldiers, we think. And they have to defend a piece of territory that is, what, 350 miles north to south, 150 miles at its greatest extent east to west, roughly speaking. It's Edessa, Antioch, um, you know, Lebanon, you know, modern-day Israel. They have to defend that with only 3,000 people. So there's not even that many Christians in Jerusalem. It is a ghost town. There's no Jews. There's no Muslims. There's barely any Christians. There's no market going. There's no building activity because there's no money. Right. And it's, it's odd. It's like, well, okay, well, you have a whole, a hollowed out city. Congratulations. Now what? What do you do with it? It's, it's basically worthless. Except from a religious point of view, they're very happy they have their church back. And that's the, you know, they would say, well, yeah, it's true. We have no money, but we have the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that's, that's what we came for.
0: Okay, so to kind of conclude this, uh, you know, end of this first crusade over here before we move on to, to Saladin the Merciful, as he's known as, um, I mean, this is kind of the, set, you know, to go back to that theme that we mentioned running through the book, though, uh, to ask you this, so this is kind of the second, you know, really bloody, terrible incident going on in Jerusalem uh, within the, you know, within one century, Al-Hakim, and then you have this, and the eyes mother of mother So again, you're yeah. arguing, oh, no, this is just kind of an outlier.
1: Not an outlier. I wouldn't say an outlier. I would say it's exceptional. Um, One of the arguments I make is that um, if you look at that, that siege we started with in 614, I'm kind of making the argument that that was the end of an epoch. That was the end of kind of the classical era where you would go into a city and you would massacre all the defenders, you know, because everything that happens after that, when the Muslims take it in 638, there's no massacre, right? When the um, Shia take it, in the 970s, there's no massacre. When the Sunnis take it back from the Shia in the 1070s, there's no massacre. The only one that happens is when, as I mentioned, they, they grab this guy's wife and family and throw it in a prison, and so he takes revenge against the garrison. But I see that as just something very, very different and very personal, right? Um, when the Fatimids, the Shia, retake the city in 1098, before right before the Crusaders get there, there's no massacre. And even if you look at later Christian retakings of the city... Right. That go on. You look at Saladin, you look at uh Frederick II, these other moments, no massacres, right? So my argument is like, okay, so you start off with a bang with the Persians, got it. And that really has nothing to do with religion, per se, right? That means that you only really only have what Al Hakim was doing for whatever reason he was doing it, and the massacre of the first crusade. Those are the big two bloody, I think, really significant events in terms of interreligious fighting. Right. Um after that, it's blockades, it's surrenders, it's peaceful transfers, um, until you get to the year 1244. And then you get the third kind of big one in a military context. Says, so, yes, yeah, so I would say they're they're exceptional because they go against the norm. The norm is peace living together, not liking each other, you know, possibly hating each other, but living next door to each other. That's the norm. And these things are so shocking because they go so much against them.
0: Okay, so now they have this establishment of the so-called kingdom of Jerusalem, right? I believe right. that's what it was, that they have a king and everything that's established. Okay, but let's discuss Saladin the Merciful. So you kind of, in the book, go pretty in-depth. I don't know how in-depth we'll go here. Uh, was he really merciful or not? But we may as well discuss yes. it. Why was he called merciful? Was he a merciful person? And what is what is his role to play uh, in the Jerusalem story of yeah. the Middle Ages?
1: Yeah, so he he gets lauded, and, and it's not just by medieval historians, but – um. By everyone, I mean, I would bring that all the way up to Jimmy Carter, who in the 1970s gave a talk praising him, um, you know, and, um, um, you know, saying, Sal, you know, um, Sadat had a chance to be another another Saladin, right? Um, these These sorts of things. He has been loved and reinvented by so many different generations as a chivalric knight, as a great guy, as a justice bringer. And because the idea is, is we have these biographers for Saladin who are very close to him, who are recording what he's thinking, right? And when he takes Jerusalem that there are some of some people are urging him it's time to get revenge for 1099 right you know what the christians did to the muslims in 1099 it's this now it's time for payback right put them to the sword and saladin famously says no i'm not going to kill them i'm i'm going to be i'm going to show them the mercy that they did not show because we're better than that right and so he gets this reputation as someone who could have carried out a massacre but he's He's got this justice in and he's not going to do it. It's not going to be eye for an eye. He's going to be merciful. And I, I challenge that a little bit in the book, but some of the other things he decides to do with these people, you know, he's not killing them, but, uh, but he may have, um, he may have allowed a mass rape of all the women, um, which you can then get into an argument about that. That sounds pretty bad too.
0: Um, okay. So I think then we can kind of uh, jump ahead to the third crusade. You mentioned earlier, much earlier, Richard, the Lionheart, Listeners may be familiar, but you could mention him, discuss him a little bit, and uh, how that plays in. What happened with the Third Crusade?
1: Yeah, so the Third Crusade is, is is off to to save Jerusalem. When it was called, Jerusalem hadn't even technically fallen yet. It it was called after the Battle of Hattin on July 4th, 1187, when Saladin destroyed the kingdom's army um, in one fell swoop. And the presumption was, well, our army's gone. The city's toast. There's there's no way we can hold Jerusalem without an army. So Saladin's going to get Jerusalem back. So we launched this crusade to retake the holy city because we presume we're going to have to retake it. Um, and so you have all these different contingents going. They all flow ultimately to the city of Acre, which is put under siege for nearly two years. Um, and there's a lot of intense fighting there and a lot of death. I calculate at least 35,000 soldiers die just at the siege of Acre. Um, And when it's over, some crusaders have had enough. Some, you know, simply no longer exist. And one most infamously, the King of France, Philip Augustus, considers his holy obligation fulfilled and he goes back to France. Uh, He says, well, I helped to get back Acre. Good luck with the rest, Richard. I'm going back to France. And from that, you get all the, um, for any of your listeners who've, um, you now if you know the Robin Hood stories, you know, you know, you know, Prince John is back in England conspiring while Richard's on crusade, you know, and um and he's conspiring with the king of France, right? Um so by the time Richard emerges from Acre, he has a a small force which can be very effective and he meets Saladin in battle and actually beats him at a couple points. Um but it does not have the combat power to actually march through the mountains to Jerusalem and and sustain itself. You know, even today, and this is what I, I tell my students, I'm like, you, you've got to take the drive the highway from um, from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. You know, the what is it? 44, 45 kilometers, right? And as it cuts through the mountains, you just say, this is your one way in and out. How do you protect your line of supply? And the answer is you can't. All, all, Saladin has an army and he can just snip it off. All he has to do is march right behind you and you're cut off from the sea. Um, and so Richard knows he can't take the city. And so instead of doing it, he agrees to a truce with Saladin. They hammer out an agreement. Um, Saladin keeps Jerusalem. Richard keeps what he's conquered. And some Christians get to go to Jerusalem and and pray at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they get to do a tour around and whatnot. Uh, But then he leaves, he goes home. And um, that sparks a lot of debate because you can ask the question well, was the Third Crusade a failure? If the object was to retake Jerusalem, it didn't. Um, If the object was to retake parts of the kingdom, it did it retakes acre it, it grabs big pieces of territory and kind of gives the christians some land to operate on again um so there's an argument over how great a king a crusading king richard the lionheart was um you know he he didn't decisively beat saladin he didn't recapture the holy city so i tend to look at him as kind of a failure but i know there are british nationalists out there who would be like that that's one of our greatest kings how dare you say that about richard
0: yeah and he famously when he was i think his coronation was a major pogroms a lot of jews were killed in england so we should mention the uh you know anti-semitism and the killing of the jews what happened oh. under richard the lionheart that's very oh, important
1: to, to absolutely that. and yeah because yeah there's a story some of these jews try to get into the coronation feast and somebody says wait a minute you don't belong here and then the, there's a killing in london and then it like sparks these other killings around england i should mention there's a um in york england there was the biggest massacre was um um, at the spot, it's called Clifford's Tower now in York. They've just um just redone the tower, and the, from what I haven't been there yet, when I understand they have a really nice memorial up there now because it used to be you go in and you see the walls and you're like, well, what happened here? You know, and you know somebody had to know to tell you the story, and now they're doing a much better job of telling that story. So again, you know, and you can see a pattern, right? Wait a minute, do Crusades need to start off with this anti-Jewish violence because the First Crusade does, the third Crusade does. um kind of becoming maybe a worrying trend. Um, so yeah, Richard's one of those guys where he's famous because of Robin Hood and he's this great crusader King. You start to peel back the surface a little bit and see what he's involved in. Um, he didn't order those Jewish killings in in England, there's no evidence that he said, go and get them, but, but they certainly occurred and there was very lackluster, uh, restraining of these forces. And so it, it raises a number of questions.
0: Okay, now getting back to – I want to just discuss the, the kingdom of Jerusalem and what's going on in the area. Uh, so Jews and Muslims during these, this time period, these centuries, the 12th century, the 13th century, are there Jews going back? Are there Jews there coming, coming there? Are there Muslims there? What's going on other than Christians?
1: Yeah, and this is what I found really fascinating, given, you know, what I've been talking about in terms of people living next to each other and, you know, getting along, right? Because what I learned going through just reading the basic textbooks is, well, the city's populated of Jews, depopulated of Jews and Muslims, right? It's a Christian only place. And then eventually they find their way back in. What I found is they're coming back in a lot earlier than than most people recognize. Um, by the 11 teens, so 19, 18, 19 years after the first crusade, Muslims are back in the city. Um, it's It's very clear they're back in. They're trading uh, at one point, the the taxes against them are actually lowered because you want to facilitate the travel and you know, goods and services. And what I found most shocking to me was by the 11 by 1140 at the latest, you have Muslims praying on the Temple Mount. Um, you have them actually praying outside Al-Aqsa Mosque with the permission of the resident Christians in particular that the Knights Templar who are supposed to be these, like, you know, the, the worst militant Christians of them all. Right. Um, you have Muslims praying on the temple Mount and you have um, a lot of this kind of prayerful activity, not just elite Muslims, but, but, but groups of them, right. The Jews are a little, a uh, little bit more inscrutable. We have this very famous uh, rabbi, Benjamin of Tudela, who who does, who has this journey, is this wonderful book as he, he goes through and he does this job where he he counts Jewish um, families, wherever he goes. And in Jerusalem, he counts only four families. And that is in the 1160s, I believe. Um, so four, you say, wow, that's not that many. Okay. Maybe the families are a little large, but you're talking about a very small population. Um, but but they're there and you know grows a little steadily from that point on. Saladin relaxed the restrictions against Jews and what we understand is that many more Jews move back to the city after he takes it in 1187. Um, so there are Christians, Muslims and Jews living next to each other. I, I would wager there's, there's many more Muslims uh, there than Jews. Um, the Jewish population is small and it will remain small for a long time because frankly, the Jews in the region have options. One of the interesting things is after that first crusade, you have this harsh treatment of Jews in Jerusalem and all these prohibitions, right? You don't have those. In the other towns of the Levant, you just you just don't have it. The um, the uh, historian Joshua Prower, who did a lot of the foundational research on this stuff, he said, "Look, if you look at Caesarea, and you look at Tyre, and you look at Ascalon, you look at all these these regions around Galilee, you find absent Jewish communities thriving. They're doing fine. There's no prohibition. It was just in the holy city um, because it was considered like this is the city of Jesus, and no one else can be here. But what I find is that unfreezes." faster than i certainly thought it did um i don't want to go and say well it became any kind of um you know any kind of wonderland of people you know living in harmony but but they're there they're clearly there and then the other piece of it and um and this is what what some modern muslims very much disagree with um that's where in that in that period is where we get the first really solid indications of um devotions at the western wall um, in, in those years, right, not praying on the on the Temple Mount. I'm sorry, on the Mount of Olives, looking at the city, but rather down along the wall. So clearly, you've got some communities living there, and then visitors, people like Maimonides, who are coming in and you know, and visiting and praying there. So there's something going on. I just wish we had better, you know, demographic information. Uh, all we know is what Benjamin tells us, and, and it's not much. It's not much.
0: Okay, now the city itself, I don't know if we, we made this clear, so we should emphasize this. who was in control at this time at the Kingdom of Jerusalem? We mentioned Saladin, Richard, what, what's going on as we'll get to the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. But until then, yeah, who is a what's going on with Jerusalem? just to clarify this, was it flipping, flip-flopping? Who was in charge of the city itself?
1: So in the city itself is under the rule of the, the, the kingdom of Jerusalem until 1187, right? So the king of Jerusalem, that is his capital. Um, that is, that is where he rules from. Once Saladin takes the city, that capital moves to Acre, uh, when it's liberated, that will become the new seat of the kingdom of Jerusalem until the city returns to Christian hands in 1229 with Emperor Frederick II. And then once again, you would think that the King of Jerusalem would rule there. But the funny thing about Frederick is he takes that title for himself. He crowns himself King of Jerusalem, uh, and then leaves. So it's it's technically his city as the king but he doesn't want anything to do with it. He really wants to spend his time in, in in Sicily and Southern Italy um with his other business. So you've got kind of you've got a king who is who is literally across the water in 1229. So who is
0: Frederick II? Where is he from? You mentioned, you know, Italy, but where is Sicily? Where is he from? What's his story? How does he get involved in the story?
1: Yeah, so he's from the uh the imperial house called the, the, the Hohenstaufen or the Staufen uh, family in Germany, we would call it Germany today. Nobody, it wasn't Germany. There was the land of the, of the, um, the, the empire people call it the Royal Holy Roman empire. Um, he is a guy who, um, has territory in what we would call Germany, um, and Northern Italy and has pretensions down in Sicily and Southern Italy. And those moves, which or he's not the first german emperor who to want to control southern italy and sicily but those moves bring him in direct contact um conflict with the um with the, the papal seat in rome um who are not too keen on being surrounded by germans um in the north and in the south and so he gets himself in an awful lot of trouble with the popes of his day ends up getting excommunicated several times um he hardly cuts the uh, the figure of a uh, Of a righteous crusader, right? I mean, when he goes on his crusade, he's actually an excommunicate. He's been cast out, separated from the flock of Christ. Um, His interest is to claim Jerusalem for himself with arguably as little effort as possible. And so he brings a small force to the Levant um, in, in what we call the Sixth Crusade. Um, and makes a move on the city and ends up winning the city with a deal. He doesn't have to fight for it. He simply um uh, meets with the uh, with the um Sultan of Egypt and and cuts it, cuts a cuts a deal.
0: So what's that deal? How does he make how does he make how does he make a deal with just a small forest and what what is his deal?
1: So this is the deal, and this deal is remarkable. And this is where I, I say there really is a connection between the medieval world and what's going on in Jerusalem today, right? The deal is, is that Frederick gets to be the king of Jerusalem. He gets the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Christians get the city. The city proper is belongs to them, right? Um, the Muslims, in exchange, get the exclusive right to pray on the Temple Mount. They get the they are the only ones who are allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. There's a story about Frederick actually being up on the Temple Mount and a, pre, and a, a priest comes up and he's reading passages from the Bible, and, and Frederick throws him you know, expels him from the mountain. says, I'll burn your Bible if there's any more of this crap. So this area is for Muslims only. It is that the agreement that really does endure all the way to the present day with only a couple hiccups and they're medieval hiccups. The rest of it is um pretty much a line of succession all the way up until as I talk in the book, you know, um, you know, 1967 and, um, uh, you know, Moish Diane and, you know, and we're going to keep the status quo and, you know, that, that sort of thing um that's how he gets it he cuts this deal and then he agrees to other things like while well, he's going to disarm um some of these fortresses and it's, it's supposed to be a 10 year truce right so i have brought peace to the land i've secured the holy city we have jerusalem back we don't have the temple mount but as christians do we really care we don't have the temple mount i mean we've got you know the dome of the rock it had been converted at one point into a church that alexa mosque had been the headquarters of the knights templar but but really, we don't really care as much about those sites. It's the Sepulchre Church that we really care about. So we get the city down below. Muslims get the city up above, uh, and that's a that's a deal for ten years. And then he he walks away thinking he's triumphed, uh, but in reality, Muslims are upset uh, because they're upset at the Sultan of Egypt because he gave away all the, he gave away the city right um, for the right to pray. That's great, but we can't we can't pray anywhere else in the city. They're mad at him. Um, the Christians are furious with Frederick, absolutely furious. He's accused of all kinds of anti-Muslim sympathies. He had a Muslim bodyguard. He writes personal letters to Al-Kamil in Egypt. So the accusation is "You're buddy, buddy with the Saracens, um, we know where you're coming from. And so, you know, so here comes the, the condemnation from the popes and, um, I look at, it, I say, what's well, a very interesting deal by two world leaders who go apparently into a room by themselves and they do a compromise, um, but nobody is satisfied with it. And when Frederick leaves the Holy land, uh, I've got this story of where he sails away from Acre and the butchers are throwing pieces of meat at him, uh, because they're so mad about what he's done. Um, so, but it does set a standard where, okay, Christians down below Muslims up top. And then you've got to answer the question. Okay, well, if that's the arrangement, where are the Jews? Right, because okay, one's up here, one's down there, and what what it looks like uh, from the documents is that they're still there, praying at the Western Wall, but they are living in you know more constrained circumstances because now once again they are under Christian rule, um, they're not under Muslim rule anymore, and so it's 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 not um, it's not freedom for them; it's still highly restricted living. That, but that deal does not mention them. It doesn't concern them. They're not political players, um, and so they they don't have a role in those negotiations.
0: We're over an hour into the podcast, and the first time we mentioned Saracens, do you want to just explain that to the listeners?
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's the um, that's the sources use this word, right? It's it's a pejorative uh, for for Muslim residents in the Levant. Um, it's um, we would say today you you wouldn't ever call um Muslims this. It's it's a derogatory term, right? Uh, but that's the one that's kind of kind of picked up and all, all the Crusader sources use it, right? Um and the sources are, you know, they're a trip to read because it's everybody's insulting everybody on every page. Um, you know, everyone's an infidel, everyone's the um the handmaiden of, of the devil, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, always fighting against the true champions of God. Um, it just depends on what language you're reading
0: okay i'll just we'll get back in a second after frederick leaves but well, we just skipped around i want to mention we haven't we, we didn't discuss the popes we didn't discuss there was a jewish aliyah at one point to be honest a kind of lunal and some others right they did go up the were jews going up so there were different things going on at this point i to throw them in the book does talk about all this and, yeah. and much much more okay so then uh, frederick leaves and as you mentioned the throwing stuff at him what happens after he
1: just you know abandons uh israel right so what you do is, you, if you're Muslim, you just wait for the ten years to to finish, right? Um, one thing I didn't mention is that in an earlier crusade, the Fifth Crusade, um, the Ayyubid rulers of of um, of the region, this is the family that rules out of Egypt, and you have Ayyubids in um, in the Levant, you have Ayyubids in Egypt, you know, some ruling out of Damascus, some out of Cairo. They just actually destroy the walls of Jerusalem in the teens, in the twelve teens, on the logic that if there's no walls the city's indefensible and so that'll maybe maybe it won't be a magnet for christians anymore right so when frederick gets the city there's actually no walls there they've been demolished there's a little bit of rebuilding of the walls but not nearly enough so when that 10 years is up all you really have to do is walk back into the city right it's it's not it's not very difficult to to reclaim the city now there will be minor crusades sent to try to grab it back. And there's this little bit of ping ponging back and forth in the years after Frederick that the so-called barons crusades uh, where um, a Frenchman and an Englishman go and they, and they make this deal to temporarily grab Jerusalem back. But the fact is it's, it's indefensible and you can't really hold it. So when the Christians do get it back, they'll hold it until the year 1244. But it's going to be taken again by this this new zealous group called the uh, the Kruasmians who are hired on, they're kind of hired mercenaries. Um, they'll come and they'll and they'll sack the city again and they'll and they'll take down the walls and it becomes a catastrophe. So after Frederick, you do have some temporary Christian control of the city, but everyone knows it's temporary. you You can't keep this thing going forever. You don't have the protection you need. You're surrounded by enemies. and Europe, frankly, by this period, is starting to lose interest in the Crusades. Um, as as a movement, it is is going down. The armies are getting smaller and smaller, and and none of them are when they do get launched. None of them succeed.
0: So, a couple things. When is the so? What is the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem? Uh, kind of two questions. What's the end of Christian control of Jerusalem, the city, and what's the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem?
1: Yeah. So, twelve forty four is the end of Christian control of Jerusalem. That's it. Um, and in that year that the Muslims take the city, it is gone. Um, they do attempt to form an alliance with the, um, with the Ayyubids to fight against these Muslim zealots to maybe get it back someday. Um, but, but they get defeated in battle. And so they never get a, get a chance to return it. So 1244 is the hard end date for it. Um, you will not have, um, Christian, uh, any kind of real Christian governance of Jerusalem until Allen becomes, um, it, it takes that long. Uh, when when he walks in 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 the 19-teens. It's strict Muslim control all the way until then. Um, So 1244 is the end date. And then the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem, it takes a little bit longer because you do have Acre. You do have these other fortresses and cities. um, And there will be a lot of wars that go on uh, between the the kingdom's last defenders and then a new power that rises in Egypt known as the Mamluks. Uh, And the Mamluks, these are the guys who... They beat off the Crusaders. They defeat the Mongols. They're, they're really, really great fighters, and they end up um, taking Acre, which is the last um, city on the Levantine coast, uh, in 1291. So, 1291 is traditionally seen as kind of the end of the Crusading period. It's not really over because the Christians are still in Cyprus. They're in Rhodes. They're they're in other places in the Mediterranean, but but they're no longer in the Levant. Uh, so 1291 is like the, the end of the primary age of the Crusades.
0: Okay. Now hopping back it. to Jerusalem. Yeah. Now going back to Jerusalem itself. So yeah. when does your book end with who is in control of Jerusalem? And then just kind of, if you want to just mention even after the book until the Ottomans take control of it, which is a little later, you don't go until there. Right.
1: Yeah. I don't go into that. Um, I, I kind of stop where the, the Mamluks are um, the Mamluks are going to grab it. Right. Um, it, it gets into this really, um, This almost dizzying array of Muslim alliances as these different factions are getting with each other and trying to, um, and try, trying to grab it and and keep hold over it. There are crusades that are launched to get it back. But as I mentioned, they all failed. The, um, King Louis, the ninth St. Louis of France leads the seventh and eighth crusade on the first one, he gets captured on the second one, he dies and they never get close to Jerusalem. Um, so it ends up in, in the Mamluk hands, um, when, when I kind of end my story in the, um, really at the, at at the close of the 13th century. Um, and so you end up with this, um, this kind of strange town that had been so important in so many ways, but it really is a, a shell of its former self. Um, I think I've got the, um, the, the demographics that we have from one account that says that basically in 1260, there were basically essentially 2000 people living there. Right. It's like 1,700 Muslims, 300 Christians, no Jews to be found because they had all, they got smart and they got out of town when the Mongols showed up on the horizon, said it's too dangerous here. So they all left. Um, but then Nachmanides shows up and starts rebuilding a synagogue and, and, and they, they start returning, right? And so you, you get these these ebbs and flows. But when you're talking mid, late 13th century, it is tiny, 2,000, 3,000 people, right? You can imagine the the, the, the vacancies in the city, right? The, the destruction, you look around and just say, it doesn't even look like much. Is this somewhere where I really want to live? Um, but I think by then, the difference is, is that you might look at it and say, this does not look appetizing, but by then, you have established prayer at the Western Wall. So there's a reason to go back. There's a reason to to bring back communities, Right. You also have the established devotions on the Temple Mount. So the Muslims have a reason to be there, right? And Christians have a reason to go on pilgrimage because the church of the sepulcher is still there, right? Um, So as long as those holy spots remain, you're always going to have interest in the city, but it's amazing in the medieval period, just how it's, it's almost like a sine wave. I mean, it's just, it just dips and it grows and then something happens and then people run away. And so at the end of my period, it it looks kind of sad and pathetic. but. But then, you know, on the horizon are better things because as I, as you mentioned, I, I don't really get into the Ottomans in this book. Um, but one of the fascinating things about the Ottomans is particularly regards to, to the local Jews is that they recognize from very early on that, that the Jews do have a history in the city and they start granting them rights and they start granting them real estate rights and, you know, permissions for worship at the wall for residents. And they really do cement that and say, you have an actual right to be here. You don't have to conquer it to be here. You can pray as you like in, this, in these locations. And that kind of gets back to the theme of the book, right? Whenever I see Muslim rulers over Jerusalem, I see them granting tolerances to Jews, right? When I see Christian rulers of Jerusalem, I see them granting tolerances to Muslims. You get this, this kind of odd thing. And then, of course, I jump all the way forward to the Six-Day War, right? Well, what do, what do we see again, right? We, you know... The Israelis have the city. You can do with it whatever you want, right? Um, you know, and uh, you know, Rabbi Garen is, you know, let's let's deal with it now, right? Allegedly, um, and no, we're we're going to re- we're going to retain these rights. And so that's that's why I see this this threat is very interesting. Um, that over and over again, whether the city is small, whether it is large, whatever the population is like, with a few exceptions, you've got people finding a way to somehow live next to each other. So, this argument of yours now
0: that you know was thread throughout the book we mentioned a bunch of times is that was that kind of why you wanted to write the book i mean what was the why did you is that what you're trying to to do here what was your i don't I don't know if we discussed you know kind of the kind of the why to write the book
1: so so some people might not believe me when I say this, but I actually came about this what I would call through academic honesty, and here's what I mean by that I decided to teach a course at the command and general staff college on um, the course was given to me. It was an elective called deep roots of conflict in the middle East. And, you know, talk about a subject, right? Wow. I mean, okay. Where do you start? And I said, well, I don't know where to start with this. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build the course around Jerusalem. Why don't we just use that as like a focal point and we'll start in the ancient period. I started with David. I started in the old Testament and went all the way forward to the Ottomans. I said, let's just see what are the roots of these conflicts? What are the Jewish claims to the cities? What is the Christian claim? What is the Muslim claim? You know, we did all that. And the more I taught that class and the more I assigned documents and just talked with the students, we just kept finding things and they'd be saying things like, you know, professor, it doesn't seem like it was that awful. I'm like, really? And we look at the document again, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, but, but there's this, there's the first crusade, you know, we like, yeah, but what about this right after it's, it seems like and more and more, we just kept finding these, these moments where they people seem to be tolerating each other. And I didn't see conflict. I saw this coexistence to use the you know, conflict or coexistence, you know, um uh phrase. And I I started thinking about it, I said, you know what, I'm gonna investigate this a little bit more. And so I started reading the sources more. And I said, you know what? I think my students and I have kind of tripped on something here. I think this is this might be reality. And so when I say I come to it honestly, I I don't, I I didn't come to it trying to push that this is a theme or to push that the other way was a theme. I I really wanted to know, I said, I want I just want to read and see, I've got to, you know, the, you know, cops get the, uh, the, um, you know, the feeling in their, you know, the gut feeling, right. Historians get this little twitch, at least I do in the back of my head where I think I'm onto something. And I wanted to know if I was right. And the more I read, I said, I, I'm convicted by this from what I'm reading. And so that's how the book came about. And then I wrote the proposal and pitched it, you know, to a publisher. Um, and the whole time as I was doing it, I was very, tried to be very cognizant of I could be wrong, right? I might be wrong. And, you know, you find this, okay, well, here's a document that suggests something else. And so I was trying to do right by it. And I will say I was rosier at the beginning than I was at the end. Um, I thought there was more peace than what I actually found. I still think the theme is peace, Um but but it got adjusted as I went through, I, you know, because you do find these other things. You're like, oh, well, yeah. You know, I tell the story of a uh, patriarch John in the 900s who, you know, gets in an argument. With, they burn him alive in the Sepulchre Church. You know, I was like, that's clearly not a good thing. And okay, so it's how do we build that in? So so it really came for just actually, it was a great moment, myself and my students, you know, looking at documents in a seminar, hashing them out, and thinking we we maybe put our finger on historical reality, maybe.
0: And as you mentioned, one if you already didn't like it. and I'm yeah. sure I'm sure I'm sure I hear from listeners listeners can email me or they can email you. Do you want to mention where can, if you know, any listeners want to reach out to you if they have any uh, pushback? On oh, this, no, no, I would be happy
1: to. That'd be fine. yeah. And the um you know I even say in the introduction, I'm like there's not everyone's gonna agree with this. I mean and and, and you know, and and I welcome you know, good historians should welcome the critique because you know, if you think you've got the answer, you're, you're wrong because all, all that happens you pull up a new document and somebody says, yeah, but did you read this? Oh. Right And instantly everything falls apart. Um, so I, th- I think my intent is I don't really it doesn't really matter to me if I prove what I'm arguing. what what I'm, what my interest is is when we talk about Jerusalem, can I can it get to the point my hope is where we talk about the conflict and talk about the coexistence? Can we talk about them both when we teach it, when we read about it, when we discuss it? That for me would make me very happy. Um, even if nobody buys it and says, ah, hostler, I think, I think there's still more fighting. Okay, fine. But, but now do you know more about the the coexistence? And if you do, then I'll consider that a victory, uh, because you know, life's not black and white. It's not, it's, it's, it wasn't unending conflict. They did get along at some times. And so let's, let's talk about both of it because that's a nice story. If you step back and say, wow, in these really tumultuous times, you're talking about the days of Muhammad, the days of the crusades, these horrible, brutal things and if people could get along then well m- maybe there's a lesson in there i don't know i mean historians we don't like to pitch lessons right that's not my job um but i like to think maybe there's a lesson
0: okay and and uh, we'll mention you have a website johnhostler.com so if mm-hmm. and listeners want to contact you anyone has any comments or feedback through they i don't know if you have your email or can they contact you go over there to contact you it's
1: a great question i don't know <laughs> i've got I'm, I'm you know i'm on i'm pretty easily easy to find on twitter um, so, um, you know, direct messages with, you know, that and whatnot, um, I've gotten some feedback already. Um, one was very negative. Somebody came out swinging. I had to block them. I felt terrible, <laughs> So, it's, but you know, it's, you write about Jerusalem and when I, when the book got approved, one of the reviewers actually suggested that I turn off my social media accounts when it got published, um, because the, the thunder was going to come down and my life might just be easier if I lived in ignorance and I still have them on right now. But I always have the option.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's a you know a, a very a very nice read, a very nice overview historically. For those that are familiar, and uh, we, we've mentioned the argument that they yeah. have. But other than that, like you know, again, it's a really nice you know really nice uh, book and overview in history of that. Now, I will link to I will link to your website in the show's notes. I will link to the book in the show's notes for those interested. Uh, I can link to your Twitter account also once you mention that as oh, well in like. the, <laughs> in the shows notes, I will mention that, you know, I, I think I mentioned the other book, as, as you've mentioned, the siege of, Akra, or, of Akko uh, 1181, 11, 1189, 1191. So that's really kind of uh, crusade stuff, but I don't know if mm-hmm. listeners are interested if this is still interesting to people. I don't know. Maybe we can do another episode on that if people are, uh, are oh, interested absolutely. in that kind of thing. <laughs> absolutely. And,
1: you know, you know, it, it won't shock you to think that I, I found the same kind of stuff there. Soldiers, you know, Muslims are hanging out with each other, playing games, talking, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's it, life, life is, is, is people are very complex. And, um, and I just find these interpersonal things where you can find them just so interesting. And it's hard in medieval studies because very often the, the sources are being written by elites, um, by and large, you don't always get a good bead on what's going on with the common person. Um, but when you do, when you get, when you get a chance to, to, to look underneath it, it, it really is fascinating. So, yeah. So I'd be happy to talk about acre. It's a, it's a, it's a fun subject. Okay, now now uh, one other thing
0: about the book, um, other than your argument, but the actual book, this time period, seventh thirteenth centuries, have there been other books like this done before, or this is something unique that, that that this book brings?
1: So there are a lot of histories of Jerusalem. The the most, I think, probably the most famous is um, Simon Sebag Montefiore's Jerusalem biography, which I actually assign in class. Um, what I find though is that that's a great read. Most of the other books I found in the history of the city tend to be kind of like that. They're they're like the whole span, right? So they'll kind of start at the beginning and go all the way up to the modern day. There's, there are some collections like academic collections that center on medieval Jerusalem. I think I'm the first one to try to tell this coherent narrative of this period, just centering on the city. I think I, yeah, I could be wrong. There's always something you haven't read before. Uh, But, but most of them tend to take the much longer, broader view. And if you're looking for that, boy, there are no shortage of titles. I mean, there's, there's popular treatments, academics, there's archeological treatments. Um, um, Eric Klein wrote a great book about um, the kind of the archeological history of Jerusalem from the beginning to the end. Um, there's lots of them out there. I have, I have a ton of them in the bibliography. Um, but as you know, the, the Middle Ages is kind of, I really think it's the, it's the lacuna. It's, um, it's the part that gets skipped because you know, the, what happened in the year 70 is, is so shocking and so consequential. You know, it demands intensive study. And then, you know, the Middle Ages, it kind of falls off the radar until the Crusades. And so textbooks will jump in and, okay, well, the Crusades, Jerusalem's important. And then they leave it again. Um, so that was another part of my ambition. Just it'd be nice to just have a nice narrative of what's going on in the city. Um, and I don't claim that it's comprehensive, but um, just, you know, blow by blow. Here you go. Here's what happened over the course of, of seven centuries.
0: And what are you working on next? Do you have any plans? Are you going to stay in the region or are you going to go back to England?
1: So I'm thinking of doing something that combines both of them. Um, And I I don't have it ready yet. I'm scheming right now. Um, But, but something that, um, that that has to do with kind of joining the two worlds together, because one thing I found when I was writing this book is if you read, if you read the Western sources from the period, you get a very different, image of Jerusalem. than if you read the Eastern sources, they're, they're, they're like two different cities um, because one area is in the know. They have the information they're there. They, they see what's going on. And the other is, I don't want to say they're ignorant because they're not, they're getting messengers back and forth and they're getting information, but there's such a distance, you know, between Paris and Jerusalem, um, just two different views of the world. And so if I can find a way to kind of reconcile those a little bit, and I might do it through kind of the lens of, of travelers, people who were in both places. And so I'm kind of playing with that idea. You know, what did somebody who was hanging out in Jerusalem and then he goes back to Rome and he talks to this person. And then, you know, this person ends up back. Um, how did view, how did images of the city and the region in general change depending on where you were and when? That? That's kind of what I'm playing. with. Okay.
0: Sounds really interesting. All right. And uh, thank you very much for joining me to discuss the book and Jerusalem and its history of the, I guess, middle ages.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. This was fun. I appreciate it.